Good day and thanks for joining us. I'm Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Jason Lusk, who's the Department Head and Distinguished Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. And we're gonna talk about a little update on the livestock and meat situation because it's been so volatile and changing so quickly. So with that, we'll just kind of kick it off here and have a, a short conversation. Um, you know, box beef prices recently have strengthened. Uh, these are the weekly averages from USDA. Uh, last week's average rose from a level that was just above 225 to almost 275 last week. And uh, Jason, I think you took a look at the daily prices and really a bigger change there. Yeah, you know, Jim, you mentioned how volatile the situation is. So I, I thought, you know, taking a look at what happened yesterday is useful and just an incredible amount of volatility. In fact, this number you're seeing here between, you know, 3 and 320, this is the the, the highest wholesale choice box beef number that I've found in the data. I don't know how far back it goes, but at least at least two decades. So, uh, you know, what's happening here is less meat is being processed. And as a result, uh, there's less meat on the market for grocers and consumers. And so they're bidding up the price of that remaining meat. And it's really starting to show itself on the beef side. And a little bit of a similar story on pork. Uh, pork has really been in the news lately, especially here in Indiana with the plant closures, which we'll talk about later. But you know, you can see the collapse in pork values that took place in March and the beginning of April, but notice how we have seen those prices recover. Again, these are the weekly averages for the pork cutout from USDA. Last week's average, just a little bit short of $75 per hundredweight. And again, you took a look at the dailies and the recovery is even more dramatic. It is, you know, it's uh, a big drop off, but a big run up again. And, you know, if, if the closures on the packing plant side persist, you know, we're almost certainly to get above where we were last year. Th this figure right here also really helps demonstrate the volatility in daily prices. In fact, I, I just did a little calculation uh, and looked at the daily changes in wholesale beef and pork prices. And what I noticed, for, this is true for both beef and pork, the largest daily gain and the largest daily decline uh, have both occurred within the last couple of weeks um, that those largest dailies are the largest we've seen in, in at least a decade and it's all occurred in the last two weeks. So big price runups, big price you know, drop and another big run up in prices. It's just a really volatile market situation at the moment. You know, Jason, this is a, a, the kind of a chart that always I think creates some concern on the part of livestock producers because we're in an environment where we're seeing recovery in wholesale pork prices uh, but at the same time, we're not seeing that kind of recovery take place in live prices. And what this really reflects is a change in the supply situation at the retail level uh, and at the wholesale level. Uh, and so as those supplies have, have come down as a result of reductions in uh, slaughter uh, and processing, uh, we're looking at smaller supplies, higher prices. But on the live side, we're not seeing that recovery. And you might talk a little bit about why that is. Yeah, I think, you know, there's two things happening at the same time. In a, when a packing plant can't run at full capacity, they, they have to reduce their demand for livestock. They can't, they don't need to buy as many because they can't run them through. That depresses demand for livestock, pushes prices down. At the same time, they're, they're not producing as much meat, less meat on the market. Um, so less, less supply of meat and that, that's pushing up meat prices. And I think that's really frustrating for a lot of livestock producers to say, why is this price gap widening and I think there's a tendency to say those packers are, are making a killing. That's not always true because what we can't see on the packer side is the cost. 
And if you look at these Packers now, they, they want to get their plants back up and running again. Um, they're doing everything they can. And what they're doing is they're incurring a lot of costs of paying workers who aren't showing up or implementing uh, safety and, and testing measures. And so, you know, just because we're seeing this widening price margin doesn't mean that the Packers are better off. In fact, I think in this situation, it's, it's no good news all around. Livestock producers are certainly worse off. Consumers, because they're paying higher prices, are worse off. And I suspect the Tysons and JBSs of the world, they're also worse off. Nobody's winning in, a, in this situation. We're all losing because of this uh, coronavirus. Yeah, that's a good point. We've seen this before. I think, uh, Jason, the last time I really remember this being a big issue was in the late 1990s, 1998 in particular in the pork sector, where we saw uh, live values for hogs collapse um, because of an excess supply at that point that we couldn't move through the plants. This situation is a little bit different. We have a reduction in capacity at the plants, which has effectively reduced their demand for live animals. At the same time, we're seeing the supply effect take place at the wholesale and retail level. So it's a a controversial situation, but it's a very understandable one from a, a fundamental economic perspective. We mentioned this in our webinar last week, but you've taken a look at this. Uh, you know, the meatpacking industry is, is pretty vulnerable to worker illnesses, especially in a concentrated geographic region. That's correct. And um, I think one analogy maybe to help folks think about this is think about uh, an hourglass shape. We have, you know, roughly 60,000 hog producers out there, but all of those hogs, you know, run through just a handful of processing plants. So on the pork side, those uh, 15 blue dots you see out there, that's about 60% of all hog processing capacity. And uh, if you draw uh, about a two, two to 300 mile radius around Des Moines, that's 11 of those plants. Uh, you see the two dots in Indiana there, they're now both closed down. So, you know, if just one of them was open, we might have better opportunity to ship to one of those plants. Um, now they're both down and you can see just if, if you have the option to ship to another plant, you're gonna incur larger shipping costs. That, but I should say on the beef side, very similar. I think in the, in the case of beef, it's the 10 largest beef plants uh, process about 60% in all cattle. And you can look at it on a geographic basis. This is a map from the Livestock Market Information Center where they've looked at hog slaughter on an annual basis according to the, uh, the state where the plant uh, is located or plants are located and 30% of the nation's hogs are processed in Iowa and that's why one of the reasons why Iowa has been so much in the news. Um, Illinois at 10%, you see Indiana down there at 7%. Uh, so a relatively small number of states uh, really process the, the, the bulk of, of the hogs in the U.S. and a, a similar situation as you just kind of pointed out on, on the cattle side, I didn't actually have a chance to compute the percentages, but you can see on the numbers there, looking at Texas, uh, Kansas, um, Nebraska, uh, really dominating the processing sector, and then followed by several other states like Colorado. So when you get outside that region, the percentages drop off pretty sharply. And so that's where we feed the bulk of the nation's cattle. That's where we process the bulk of the nation's beef. Jim, you want to comment real quickly, like why are some of those states gray? Uh, some of those states are gray because they either don't have much processing capacity or in reality they have uh, concentrated among a small number of firms and so the USDA has restricted the access to that state level data to preserve the uh, anonymity of the firms involved and that, that would be the case in, for example, Illinois, uh, where one plant in particular dominates and that happens to be a Tyson plant. So, Good question. So. Um, Let's take a look at the slaughter numbers. They have been quite dramatic. So these are through last week and you can see that 
earlier in the year, we were uh, processing about 2.8 million hogs per week for at least a couple of weeks. Beginning of the week, uh, year, it was about 2.7 million hogs. Um, last week, it was right around 2 million hogs. Uh, if you look at it on a weekly basis, volume has declined about 26% since early March. Um, if you look at the pork production numbers, not too surprisingly, with the weights being essentially held constant, pork production also down about 26% since that early March. So a fairly dramatic decline in both slaughter and pork production in just a few weeks, more than we would normally expect to see on a, on a seasonal basis. And again, you've taken a look at this on a daily basis. It's even more dramatic. Yeah, you know, some of what you see here is on a daily basis, things are just much more volatile. Um, but I also think it shows just a dramatic drop off we've seen in the last day or two, particularly here in Indiana, where we had Indiana Packers close down over the weekend. Um, you know, and it, you and I were talking earlier, you know, it's, it's tough to know where you should calculate your percentage change from. But if I take the, you know, roughly the same date last year on uh, on Monday of last year and compare it to yesterday, that's almost a 50% reduction, um, which is a, a pretty dramatic uh, dropping off in terms of daily hog slaughter numbers. So I think uh, it's this, this shows you why there's so much news and so much consternation out there is when you when you drop processing numbers by that magnitude, that starts having some serious repercussions for the entire hog supply chain. Yeah, very much so. That's why it's a big concern, uh, obviously, on the both supply side and the demand side from a producer perspective. If you look at the beef numbers, weekly beef production is down to about uh, 32% since the last week of March. So it's been a, a really just these last three weeks where we've seen the big decline in beef production. Again, you took a look at the daily numbers there. Um, yeah, again, very similar. Here, you, know, you see a more, you know, persistent and, and dramatic decline with regard to uh, cattle slaughter. Uh, but again, if you just look at the daily numbers uh, yesterday compared to the same uh, Monday last year, it's almost a 50% decline. And one of the advantages, and but also in this case, a disadvantage of our pretty efficient processing sector is we've got large plants that take advantage of scale economies. However, when those a small number of those large plants uh, come offline, in this case, because of uh, problems with COVID-19, it has a big impact on uh, daily processing capacity and, and daily uh, uh, production of, of uh, beef and pork. The chicken numbers are not quite as dramatic, and I have to point out to our viewers that there's one week difference in the data, so I don't have last week's data yet for chicken, but nevertheless, if you look at it through the week before, the week ending uh, the 18th, uh, chicken production down about 12% since early March. I think when uh, last week's numbers become available, that'll probably be down a little bit more than that as well. But uh, interesting that chicken production reductions haven't been as large as what we've seen in either beef or pork. You took a look at the cold storage and you might share that with you with us. That could be something that helps us uh, maybe get through this. Yeah, you know, the concerns uh, people have been having about whether we're going to have shortages at the retail level, I think it's still hard to know. I mean, I think my response has been, uh, we're almost certainly to have some price increases at the retail level. Um, we've increased the prospects of some shortages, particularly in some geographic locations. But one thing that helps mitigate that is is the fact that we do have some uh, meat and storage. The green line at the top is 2020. And um, at least at the end of last month in March, we actually had more cold uh, 
pork and cold storage than we have for the last three years. So that, that should be helpful coming into this. Now we're, we've probably drawn down some of that over the, the last couple of weeks that, that we've been in April. Uh, but I think that should provide some cushion to give, to give you some perspective about how much is in cold storage, a little back of the envelope calculation uh, uh, suggests we have maybe uh, 10 days of total consumption in cold storage. So if every packing plant shut down, uh, we could eat out of cold storage for roughly 10 days. Um, now, one thing to comment about this cold storage, it's not clear what all that means. And some of it could have been packaged to send off to restaurants or for international trade or what have you. Uh, but still, I think the market incentives are going to be to bring some of that down. I've noticed, uh, Jim, just here in our local grocery stores that I'm starting to see pork in particular packaged uh, differently than I normally see it. A lot more vacuum packaging in ground beef, for example, a lot more chub packaging. Uh, the other thing I'm seeing is more whole muscle cuts showing up in the grocery store. And I suspect the reason that's happening is these were packaged perhaps with the intention of sending the food away from home. But with that being uh, that avenue being sealed off, uh, we're, we're moving that into grocery store establishments. And we may see more of that if we bolt, uh, pull some more pork out of cold storage. I think that's right. And the other thing that's been taking place at, at some of the plants has been some adjustment in terms of how they process and focus more on the whole muscle cuts, for example, as you mentioned, because it takes less labor. And so that is a way to maintain as much capacity as they possibly can, because uh, even for the plants that have been open, uh, many of them are not operating at full capacity because they've had some labor uh, challenges with respect to a shortage of labor uh, that was available. So those plants are doing some things to try and maintain capacity. Uh, and one way to do that is to not do as much processing at the plant and let consumers do some of that, or in some cases, maybe grocery stores do some of that. Um, we've also taken a look at the beef uh, cold storage stocks as well. Yeah, you know, curiously, in, in March, we were actually, we're up compared to February, and we're also higher than we've we've seen in the last three years. Some of this may be, you've got, I know you've got some data you'll show us in just a minute, but I suspect some of this was because we actually, you know, increased uh, cattle processing in March pretty significantly, and there may be a variety of reasons for that, but, but some of it might have been an anticipation of this, of this exact outcome occurring so we process more cattle put uh, put more beef in storage in anticipation of this decline so again we've got roughly 10 days of of uh, meat and of total u.s consumption in, in cold storage and i suspect you know we'll see what what happens in the data i suspect we'll probably draw down down on that some in april and, and maybe even into may yeah, so let's take a look at the prices. Here's the hog prices. These are the barrel and gilt prices. This is the Iowa Southern Minnesota uh, price series. So these are carcass base prices. They don't reflect the premiums that producers received over and above the base uh, for quality differentials, but uh, it gives you an idea as to how big of a decline in, in price we've seen, um, moving from roughly $60 a hundred weight on a carcass weight basis to uh, well below 40, we dipped as low as about 35, or actually I think about 33 or 34 uh, on those barrels and gilts. Just a small, very small uptick last week, uh, but not enough to, to really uh, kind of moderate the pain, I guess. And as you look at uh, early wheat and pig prices, similar story. Uh, they have really been dropping sharply, especially really the decline in the, in the early wean pig prices got underway sooner than it did in the barrel and gilt prices. And that was largely because of an expectation for some weaker prices down uh, later in the year, uh, even before COVID really took off. And 
and one of the challenges we're facing uh, for the livestock sector in general was this was a year when we were looking, coming into uh, 2020, looking at uh, record large production across all the meats. Uh, so the pork industry was in expansion mode, uh, positioned really to take advantage of an expectation for increasing exports, especially to China. Um, and now, you know, this has happened really, it's really exacerbated the problem for a lot of producers' perspective. Um, if you look I at fed cattle prices for slaughter yep. steers, yeah, go if ahead. You, if you don't mind, I might just comment on that last slide, the, the fall in, you know, wean pig prices. I think that's also reflecting this, you know, really, you know, difficult supply chain problem we have at the moment. And, and maybe for folks that aren't that familiar with the hog production industry, you know, I think it, in good times, this is a well-orchestrated, well-coordinated system with many different actors that work together. So you may have a, a you know, a sow operation, you know, you, you impregnate a sow today, you can pretty well bet about 300 days from now, there's going to be a pig showing up at, at the slaughterhouse, but it may go through, you know, three or four different barns or facilities in that time period. So, you know, we had sows that were bred about three months ago that are, are having piglets today and those piglets need to go somewhere. And, and generally they go to somebody else's barn if we move them into a nursery or then into a, a farrowing or finishing house. And so we have the supply chain that's, that's moves animals, you know, in good times through this, um, you know, efficiently through this process. But when those hogs aren't able to leave those finishing barns for the packing plant, that creates this really big backup. But baby piglets are still being born, and that's creating a real constraint and a real problem in the system. And that's why we see these prices falling is, you know, people, we don't have the room for those animals at the moment. Yeah, that's a good point, Jason. And, and, you know, one of the things that's different about the hog industry versus the beef industry is this space constraint, because we process these hogs. Once they're born, their timeline in terms of how they move through the system is very well defined. In the cattle side, uh, you have a lot more flexibility with respect to production practices. And, and we're going to see some of that here in some of the slides we're going to show in a minute. But um, a lot more ability to slow things down, take advantage some, of some other feed resources, and maybe target a different time of year for the uh, actual processing of those cattle into, into beef. And, and that's really one of the big differences between beef and pork. And one of the reasons why we're so concerned about what's taking place in the pork industry right now. I, I agree. And I think, you know, uh, not to get off topic here too much, but I think there, you know, for folks that don't know the industry very well, I think there are some kind of views like, well, um, it's not that big a deal. Why don't we just move some more of these uh, pigs through some smaller processing facilities that are around? I think it's hard for folks to get a sense of the scale here. So, you know, the, the two pork packing plants in Indiana, they move about 15,000 pigs every single day that they're open. 15,000. Um, so yeah, if you have a small packing plant in your local town that say even does 150, that means they have to run 100 days just to match one day at one of these large plants. Um, so there just isn't the capacity that's out there. And, and moreover, just, you know, it's, as long as we're talking about animal numbers, you know, just in the state of Indiana here alone, we have 4 million pigs uh, out there. It's not like we can just turn, turn these animals out to pasture. Um, they stay in barns for biosecurity reasons, for the health of the animal and, and, you know, the health of people. And so, you know, it's, I think for folks that are intimately knowledgeable of the industry, it's hard to get a sense of scale. That's a good point. And, and um, again, it's, it's the rigidity, I guess, of that system that we've put together, which is very efficient. Uh, in fact, over the last couple of decades, last several decades, it's a, a system that's built on high herd health. 
so we've built a system that's very efficient in terms of allowing us to move the animals through quickly, efficiently, at the lowest possible cost, uh, but comes with those scale economies, come some challenges in an environment like this. Let's take a look at the fed cattle prices. These are slaughter cattle prices. This is uh, the Kansas series, uh, obviously, uh, the Kansas series is pretty representative of what's going on in the Southern Plains where so many of the cattle are fed. Um, and you can see those prices at the beginning of the year were above 120, averaging about 125. Uh, then if you go back just about four weeks ago, we were still at about 120. And notice uh, here last week, our average was about uh, roughly $100. So if you think about that $20 drop over the course of four weeks, uh, think about what that means on a per head basis. That probably means, depending on the weight of those cattle, uh, $240 to maybe $260 difference per head change in value of those animals. So a big loss in value in a very short span of time. And then as you look at feeder prices, feeder cattle prices here, I, this is a series from Kentucky, uh, from USDA, for seven to eight weight feeder steers. Those prices have declined as well, but not as sharply as what we saw on the fed cattle side. And I think that's really a reflection of this idea that we could slow those cattle down a bit, uh, look for some ways to maybe market those cattle on the other side of the COVID situation, uh, hopefully in an environment when perhaps demand has started, started to rebound a bit. Uh, but still, it's a significant loss, I think down about 10% compared to where we were in early March. So. A significant loss, but not uh, as dramatic as what we saw on the fed cattle side. And then uh, just last Friday, USDA released uh, their estimates on the cattle on feed across the nation. And I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at those. So we've been talking a little bit about how the cattle industry can respond to a changing economic environment fairly quickly. And I think this slide kind of helps us understand that. This is net placements of cattle on feed. So this is um, the, the placements of cattle on feed minus the so-called other disappearance category that USDA reports as well. And if you look at those numbers, you can see those placements coming down somewhat in February. And I think a chunk of that, it really occurred towards the latter part of February. And then notice how sharply placements dropped in March compared to last year. And I think that's really reflective of the industry saying, you know, in this environment, we don't need near-term fed cattle supplies. What we're gonna try and do is keep those cattle outside of feedlots, slow them down in terms of their uh, feeding regimen, uh, take advantage of some alternative feed resources, particularly forage-based diets, which, which give us uh, uh, slower, based, uh, slower gains and uh, ultimately market those cattle later rather than sooner. And I think that'll probably continue here in April. We'll see reductions fall below last year again in April as people continue to try and slow the system down, bring fewer cattle to market uh, to be processed into beef here in the short run uh, with the expectation that down the road we'll see a better demand for those animals. And you can also see this with the marketing. These are cattle uh, coming out of feedlots going into a beef processing plant. Notice the marketings rising above last year in February, rising dramatically above last year in March. I think, you know, we were talking about this earlier, Jason, before the call started. And, and yeah, I think what was going on there was people expecting things to get worse rather than better in the short run and trying to move as much uh, beef through the system as soon as possible. And that got underway, I think, at the tail end of February and then continued through the month of March. 
I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. These uh, folks are, you know, pretty reasonable. <laughs> and I think they, they were forecasting some of the challenges we're now seeing, but, but also as you pointed out with, uh, you know, placements in the feedlots, they're also maybe a little more optimistic about the come, you know, uh, later the summer perhaps. And so when you put those two together, the smaller placements and the aggressive marketings, the result is cattle on feed inventory 6% below a year ago, whereas at the beginning of the year, we were actually above uh, a year ago levels. So it's really a different situation than what we've been faced with on the pork side. Pork is really in this uh, system where once the animals are born, a pretty well-defined timeline in terms of moving those animals through the system, they need that shackle space and a processing plant uh, without very much flexibility. On the cattle side, we are able to slow things down. Uh, so we're having a pretty severe economic impact in terms of the reduction in value for cattle that are on feed, that are ready to go to market. But the industry has already taken some steps to slow things down, keep cattle outside of feedlots here at least for a while uh, in an expectation of seeing things improve. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, people are concerned about in the pork industry is, is if we can't get some of these plants reopened quickly, um, we might have to take some steps to actually euthanize some market ready animals. I don't think that's the case in beef. I think we're able to slow things down enough in the system, um, keep cattle on feed perhaps a little bit longer than otherwise might have been the case in some feedlots, uh, keep cattle outside the feedlot uh, longer than, than we would have otherwise and just simply slow things down. And, and unless things get a lot worse, I don't think we're gonna see that kind of a situation develop on the beef side. Normally you talk about the, the fact that cattle have much longer biological lags as being a detriment to you know, imp improving say genetics in a, a more rapid period of time. But in, in this case, that longer biological lag is actually helpful in smoothing out some of the problems. Very much so. so one last slide here, I guess, before we kind of sign off. And, and uh, you know, one of the things we normally see is an improvement in demand for choice product on the beef side versus the select uh, somewhat lower grade or different grade uh, with, with lower fat content. Uh, and as that in, in, uh, kind of unfolds as you move through the year, there's a pretty strong seasonal trend for that uh, premium of choice over select to improve as we head into uh, the spring and into the summer. And I thought it was interesting to notice that that in fact, uh, that pattern is holding even though we've got all this disruption taking place in the industry, that choice select spread on at least on a weekly average basis has continued to improve here in recent weeks. Uh, we had a little bit of a setback a couple of weeks ago, but then saw some strength show up last week. It's gonna be interesting to see how that unfolds the next few weeks, but it does suggest that we're seeing some fairly normal purchasing patterns with respect to uh, what consumers are doing. Um, but there's also a supply aspect to that as well. And that is uh, normally in an environment where you hold cattle back and slow down the marketings uh, perhaps excessively, uh, you have an abundance of supply of the choice product versus select. And sometimes that'll lead to a, a pretty significant decline in the value of choice versus select. Uh, the data here suggests that hasn't happened, that we haven't slowed down the beef chain enough to have a big impact on that choice select spread. And it also suggests that consumers are, um, you know, this time of year, we start thinking about people uh, you know, buying product for, for example, grilling season. Uh, so it, it's gonna be interesting to see, that's always a good indicator to watch that choice select spread 
and see what happens. So that'll be one of the variables that I watch here in the next few weeks to see how that unfolds as to whether or not we've really backed cattle up and also to see how consumers are responding to, uh, to this environment. So, and then I guess for that, uh, Jason, I think one thing to think about is as we go forward, you know, how is this going to shake out? And uh, one of the things you and I were talking about earlier is the fact that uh, we're starting to see some states open up a little bit. Um, and that could have a change in terms of demand for some of these products. It's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out here over the next uh, few weeks, maybe the next couple of months. Agreed. You know, will, will we be able to eat out more at restaurants? That'll certainly have a big effect. Um, you know, some people are concerned about a second wave, uh, which is problematic. I think, at least in the more immediate term, the, the biggest question that is going to have the biggest impact on these markets is what's going to happen to these packing plants? Can, can they get back online faster than anticipated? Might we have some more closed down? I certainly hope not, but uh, it'll be interesting to watch. And it's this is not a... A day, it's not a, you know, week to week, it's day to day and hour by hour to see what's really happening out there. Yeah, that's a good point with, with respect to how quickly the plants come online. I was just listening to a call earlier today where uh, Dr. Brett Marsh, our state veterinarian, was on the call. And he indicated that one of the things that uh, the Board of Animal Health is doing here in Indiana is trying to work closely with the plants to uh, try and help them come back online uh, as quickly and as safely as possible. And so uh, his expectation was that uh, they were trying to do everything they could to make sure that those plants didn't stay offline any longer than was absolutely necessary. And I would obviously be good for consumers uh, and also good, very, very good for producers as well. So with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Uh, I've got a slide up there on the screen it says our next crop outlook webinar comes up on May 15. Uh, that's been scheduled for some time. We're going to keep that on the books and, uh, as things kind of develop here uh, in the ag sector, we'll, uh, we'll consider uh, maybe doing some other things on the website as well. So with that, on behalf of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture and my colleague, Jason Lusk, I'm Jim Mitchert. Thanks for joining us.